Hey, this is Dan, just dropping you a quick line before you start this episode to let you know a couple of things. What you're about to listen to is one of the classic best of episodes of Assorted Goods in its older format. And by older format, I mean the sandbox and completely disorganized style that Assorted Goods was for its first few years of existence. Now, since then, the feed has been cleaned up and there's 12 of these classic episodes. And you should know, if you're a new listener, that these episodes are not really what the show is now. But they're still good and they're still worth listening to. But just be warned that if you're looking to get into assorted goods as it is now, that you probably want to go to the latest episode in your feed. Start listening from there. Throughout the episode, you might hear certain things get mentioned, like the website or the social media. Now, those have changed. So don't go chasing those websites or links after the episode. Go to these ones instead. The website has now disinformed.ca, CA for, you know, Canadians like me. And that's where you can find all the assorted good stuff that is mentioned in these episodes. You can find the source lists and additional information. They have all moved to there. In terms of emailing, you can email me now with the new email, dan at disinformed.ca. And if you want to follow on social media, Twitter and Instagram, the new handles are at disinformeddan. And hey, look, all three of those are kind of similar with each other, creating some sort of uh, continuity. People tell me that's important. But anyways, whether you're a new listener or a returning listener, I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Assorted Goods. And then I hope you subscribe to the show and come along for the ride with the new episodes as well. And as always, thank you for listening and enjoy. Well, well. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Assorted Goods. I'm Dan. Thanks for joining me here today. And oh, it feels good to be back and making episodes again. A little summer hiatus was needed. A chance to get out of the relentless cycle of working on episodes and, you know, enjoy the summer just a bit. It was nice, but back to it. Here once again to provide you all with some more useful information and entertainment, hopefully. Now, I've been thinking about the show a lot lately, and what I want to do with it, and so forth. So, going forward, I think Assorted Goods is going to be more geared towards the larger, single-topic episodes. You know, those are the ones that, in my opinion, and really, as the number of listeners (laughs) indicates as well, those are the ones with the most substance, you know? The best stories that seem to resonate with people, and I think those are the best episodes as well. Although they take a lot more work to make, I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. So... Not to say I won't have episodes containing smaller stories, we'll just be doing more of the big stuff around here each episode. And I'm sort of spitballing with the idea of having a bit of an outlet for those smaller stories, I find. You know, something like a newsletter you'd be able to sign up for, you know, a sort of goodie bag of the week or something like that, you know, a little collection of stories and a blurb about each. But again, if that happens, you'll be the first to know. Okay? Sound good? I hope so. Anyways, if you're new to Assorted Goods, let me just say thank you for stopping by. I hope you'll come back again and again and tell your friends and all that good stuff. Assorted Goods is a podcast where I do my best to learn a little bit more about the world, one topic at a time, and then hopefully pass along what I find to you in a way that is worth sitting through for roughly an hour an episode. There's been a lot of people listening to the show lately, even though I haven't been putting out shows all summer, so I assume that there's probably some new folks stopping by. 
So if you want to know a little bit about me, honestly, there's not a lot. I'm really just a regular guy making the show for the enjoyment and hoping it proves to be worth your time. As for returning listeners, I've missed you. As always, I simply ask that you leave the podcast a rating or a review wherever you listen, and also maybe tell a friend about the show. All right, now to some business. Assorted Goods is a proud member of the No Phony Podcast Network, as it has been for a long time now. A group of quality people making even better shows that cross a whole bunch of genres. You should check out their lineup at nophonynetwork.com. And Assorted Goods is also a member of the All the People Podcast Network. Same deal, great people, great shows. And you can find their lineup at allthepeoplenetwork.com. Both lovely groups, No Phony and All the People, are also in a little bit of cahoots with each other. Working together in association, almost certainly because they share a love child and assorted goods. <laughs> Anyways, check them all out. All the shows, all the people, they're all great. Both networks are just awesome, and I promise you won't be disappointed. Anyways, finally. All right. What is this episode? Why are we here? Well, I've got a nice surprise for you today. A guest. Just a second guest here on Assorted Goods. And this was an awesome experience. My guest this episode is journalist Matt Hongoltz-Hetling who has written an awesome new book about a little corner of America that is way off the grid and the problems that the people there faced when they were trying to blaze their own trail and build a new type of community. Matt and I dove into the story of the book, the people he met, their ideas about the world, and we also got into the subject of writing and the state of local journalism. It was a really awesome talk. We covered a lot of stuff, and I think, honestly, it just makes sense to get on with it and let you actually hear the thing. So, here it is. And I hope you enjoy. Hydrate myself a little bit. So. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, all right. Well, my guest this episode is an award-winning journalist whose new book, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, comes out on September the 15th. You can pre-order it on Amazon right now, which I encourage you to do so, despite my feelings on Amazon. I'll let uh, any of my listeners off the hook just this one time. Anyways, I'd like to welcome Matt Hongoltz-Hetling to the podcast. Matt, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. Uh, stoked to be here. And folks, you can get my book anywhere, anywhere books are sold. Good, good. That's, that's a good follow-up. <laughs> uh, I got to say, though, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show because I, I really wanted to talk about the story that you wrote about in this book. Uh, again, it's called The Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, which, which sort of sets the table for the story you're going to get. But it's a, it's a full-fledged version of an article that you published in 2018, if I'm correct about that. That's I, right. Could, could you give me just a, or give listeners just a little bit of a synopsis of the story? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's basically about this, um, this thing called the Freetown Project, which is in 2004 all of the nation, the, like the national libertarian community, they decided that they wanted to create their own utopia uh, with, you know, no taxes, no rules. And they went to a small New England town and actually moved there uh, so that they could outvote the existing town residents and make this happen. So they chose a little town in New Hampshire called Grafton. And soon after that, uh, the town started having bear problems. And my book is about how those two things are related. And that's, that's why I was so drawn to the story. It's such an awesome tale of a little corner of the world that you never really hear about. 
you know, and those, those are the kinds of stories that I really like to get into is sort of the people that are the people that are sort of next door that you never really hear from their lives and all that. And I, I, I really enjoyed it so far. Uh, you sent me a copy. I, in the day and a half I've had it, I managed to get about eight chapters through it. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my progress despite being a very slow reader at times. So, and, and I'm, I gotta tell you, it's, I'm probably going to, cram right through it through the whole weekend because I'm, I'm loving it already. Uh, but it is really such a charming story. And I, the first thing I noticed right off the bat with it was, was how you sort of told it very personally in a way that, uh, you know, in the first few chapters, you're, you're very open and you, you admit that, you know, sometimes you don't relate necessarily to the people you're talking to, but you have such a great sense of humor about it and, and such, I guess, charm with the people that it, it really, it really sort of draws you into sort of I, I felt like as a reader, you, you make it feel like it's okay to be an outsider here because I was an outsider too. And, and this was sort of my perspective coming in. So I, I again, I, I love the perspective of it to begin with, but I, I just want to back it up a little bit and sort of ask, how did you, how did you find your way to Grafton in the first place? Uh, well, I was, uh, and thank you for saying that. Yeah. I feel like kind of like one of my starting premises or, or like worldviews that, that shapes my writing is that, everybody is absurd, including myself. <laughs> and so that, that. That, that kind of makes it easy to, you know, uh, make light of, of um, all, all of the characters and including uh, myself and my own interactions with them. Uh, but I, I came to Grafton for the first time, uh, I was working for my local newspaper um, uh, in, in the Upper Valley uh, on the Connecticut River. And I was assigned to go do a story about a uh, woman veteran who was having a hard time connecting with her veteran benefits. She was disabled. She couldn't get certain services in her house. Uh, She was pissed off about it. So she called and I went there and we started talking about this and we were in her house and it was... uh, uh, there were a lot of cats in her house, and, and yeah, you know, it's like a good icebreaker. I start right. chit with her about her cats, um, and she says, uh, "Oh yeah, I used to let them outside, but that was before the bears came." I'm like, oh. well, who wants to talk about veteran benefits now? <laughs> you know, like to tell me about these bears. And she told me this like kind of amazing story about how a bear had burst out of the undergrowth around her house into her backyard, snatched two kittens up uh, practically at her feet and ate them. Um, and, uh, and that was part of a larger pattern of odd bear behavior that she, she first called my attention to. And so I was like, oh, I, I got I to gotta ask more questions. Now, she, she was a, a character pretty early on in the book, if I recall. The, the, she had the, the kittens that were swept up by a bear that approached one night. And, and That's right. Now, if I recall, if I remember, you said that that was what made you come back afterwards, was, was you just couldn't get over the bear stories, really. Is that, is that true? <laughs> That, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I started like, go, yeah, I pitched uh, the Atavis magazine on a story about uh, initially just about cat eating bears, because that's a really weird right. phenomenon. Right. Yeah, so it was going to be like the, the cat bear war of Grafton County. Um, <laughs> and yeah, people worried that eating cats might be like a, a kind of gateway drug to eating people, right. as I say in the book. Uh, and so, yeah, I started just asking around town, like, hey, yo, I'm writing about bear encounters in Grafton. Have you had anything unusual happen? And a lot of people told a lot of really interesting stories. And then I kind of like 
uh, started to ask myself like why the bears here were different. And uh, that's what led me to the, the Freetown project. Right. And I think that's, I think that was one of the things I found so fascinating early on was, was the fact that I, it seems like you, you, every person you went to to ask about bears, maybe it was sort of like, you're, you're right, like a natural icebreaker with them, you know, that, that you come in, you're coming into a place that's very different to begin with. And you're asking about something that seemed to be so uh, relatable and local for, for every person you talked to there, where they're like, it seems like you went up and said, what about the bears? And people were like, oh, I have a bear story. Sure. <laughs> or I, I know somebody who's got a bear story or like this. And that. It, it's, I was really impressed. I really enjoyed that, that the first, the first few chapters were always these varying accounts about about you know what the bear experience in grafton new hampshire is like and it's it sort of swept me off my feet the first few chapters thinking like well what's this what does this person have in store for for the bear this next person have in store (laughs) but what what were some of the things that sort of surprised you about grafton when when you when you first sort of went there i mean outside of the the obvious sort of bear attacks on people but also what were sort of the the, some of the local uh, i don't i don't know aspects of the the community there that sort of caught you off guard yeah, well, you know, uh, as a person who had been covering small rural communities in New England for years, like there's kind of like a, a commonality to a lot of small New England communities. And so I was used to the idea that, you know, there's only going to be one general store in town, if that, you know, that, that it's going to be uh, small, kind of like uh, everybody looking out for themselves right. to some extent. Um but I was really surprised when I realized, you know, because you drive through and it just, it's like many other towns. There, there's right. a lot of woods. Uh, there's a very small uh, kind of residential slash municipal area. And then there's a lot of woods. Uh, and so I didn't realize that in those woods, there was a bunch of people living in really unusual living situations. You know, a lot of off-grid living, a lot of the, these little like encampments where people were living in yurts, in trailers, in uh, you know, broken down motorhomes, in tents. And those people, uh, many of whom were not native to the area, had kind of brought in their own culture. And it was, yeah, shared some DNA with uh, typical small town rural New England, uh, but it was radically different in other ways. And that's, that's, a, that's an excellent, you've set me up perfectly here, because I wanted to actually get into a little bit about the, the whole libertarianism thing, which, which is one of the things that fascinated me. Personally, I, I only know a little bit about the, the ideology. To me, it was always just sort of the, I always thought of it like a Wild West thing. That that people who sort of yearned for the frontier of America that that you could you could you know do whatever do whatever you want be anything go anywhere you know you don't answer to anybody sort of but I think for most people who aren't aren't totally clear on what the whole ideology is about could you could you give us a little information on sort of what libertarianism is and and sort of how it blended into to Grafton itself Yeah yeah you know I um it's a little hard to pigeonhole libertarians because. Uh, it's it's a fringe political movement, right? It, it is often thought of as being more to the right than mainstream Republicans, you know, kind of like Tea Party right. activism type stuff. Uh, but they actually have a lot of progressive views as well. Um, they believe in, you know, absolute personal freedom. Everybody ought to basically just mind their own business all the time. Uh, the only role of the government should be to 
uh, enforce someone's property rights. Right. And, um, you know, that, that fits neatly into a lot of uh, kind of like left ideas such as um, uh, uh, abortion rights. Right. Um, uh, they were very early on the bandwagon for uh, promoting uh, gay marriage, you know, back when that was an issue. I can't right. believe that was a, a debate, but yeah. it was not that long ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so they, they have some, you know, their, their, their pure philosophy leads them to some positions on either side. Right. But right. I think what, you know, dominates the conversation there uh, tends to be uh, cut taxes, cut rules, and that is very much kind of, a, uh, you know, probably like the most momentous and substantial issues that they deal with right. on any given day. And that usually comes across as this kind of like uh, Darwinism of like, let everybody fend for themselves and the free market will sort all of society's problems out, which is a big problem. Right. And I, I thought it was really interesting that they, that you describe early on in this book or, or a few chapters in that I guess at some point they, and I'd heard about this before and I, I, I never actually, I thought this is one of the reasons I was so interested in this story was it was like the, the real, uh, I guess, real example of, of something that I'd only heard in passing years ago about them looking for sort of a, uh, I guess, maybe for lack of a better term, like a promised land of libertarianism, that they were looking for somewhere to, to sort of forge their ideology. And, and I thought you, you, you make a good point early when you start talking about them in the book that their problem was that every time they tried to get into politics, everybody, like you said, right, they, they do get pigeonholed with their ideology. And, and it turns out for, for so many of them that they were like, well, what we needed is a, a real life example. We need to show that this is something that works. So, and, and therefore we need to find a place where we can take over and, 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 you know, elect people who are like-minded and then show the world and show America that, that libertarianism works. And here's our shining example, but also the fact that that as well, that, that as it sort of went along, that there's, you know, radical Bernie Sanders, sort of progressive socialists living next to, you know, uh, you know, a Confederate flag. And, and it's like, it's, it's very, it gets said a lot in the book so far, as far as I've read it, that, that they keep saying, you know, whatever sort of outsider you are or whatever sort of radical ideology you have, there's a place for you here. And, and I think that's, uh, I think that is sort of a, an amazing sort of, it, it's the amazing piece of the whole tent city and all that is, is, that they're so different and and yet they're sort of united you're right by this common thought of of just being somewhere where they're free to be whatever they want to be and mm -hmm. it's and for people who read the book they're going to find that that actually extends to some pretty extreme lengths too if i'm if i'm correct the some of the founders or the original scouting party some of them believed sort of extreme versions of, of this personal freedom that, that, you know, things like cannibalism should be allowed or, you know, sex trafficking, like so you, you touch on a few things that some of these people came in and were like, yeah, and we should also be allowed to, you know, marry as many people as we want. And, and if I, if I'm not mistaken, did that not put some of the existing locals really off? At, yeah. At first? yeah that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, one of the issues with libertarianism is that uh, it's never been really tempered by leadership, right? right. You've, you've never really had that libertarian community. So they have a very pure philosophy. 
that underpins everything that they like to argue about. But uh, if you were to actually put them in charge of a place, um, they would be forced to kind of modulate and temper some of those extreme views. Right. And the Freetown Project became a landing spot for not only libertarians who are by their nature kind of extreme, but by some of the most extreme libertarians, right? Like the fringe right. of the fringe, people who could just on a whim move to a, a random town in Crafton, either because they had a ton of money or because they didn't have any money and you know, nothing was keeping them wherever they came from. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, some of their, the, the founders of the Freetown, yeah, uh, they were exactly that sort of extremist that you describe. You know, they, they wanted to, uh, you know, like, even if you think in theory that cannibalism should be uh, allowed and that uh, organized bum fights are okay, right. probably you shouldn't put that on the website, right? Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and you outlined that pretty early on, right? That, that shortly after the, the sort of scouting party arrives and a few more members come with them and all that, and they start sort of setting up shop in town, that they hold a, a town meeting. And, and that sort of is what I think if you just you describe it in that chapter is, is it sort of devolves very quickly that, that a few people stand up and go, no, we're about this. And the one guy stands up and goes, but I also think we should be able to, to you know, marry, you know, traffic in, in wives. From, <laughs> and people are like, whoa, 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 hey, wait, what? And then there's sort of this recovery period afterwards where the people who, that, that guy leaves, if I'm not mistaken. Does, yeah. does, and then the people who stay go, have to sort of do this damage control of like, no, no, we're all about freedom, but we're not, you know, we're not quite like him. Like we just sort of, we're like, we're like all the good stuff, but none of that. So it, I find <laughs> that to be really amazing. And, and that's also, I think that sort of fits in with a lot of sort of political social movements in America these days that, mm -hmm. that they, they, like you said before, they get pigeonholed, right? Like even mm -hmm. some of the current social movements, right? When you hear people debate them, what do they always come back to is it, it, it always gets, it always seems to get boiled down to sort of like a hashtag, right? Or, <laughs> Or a common <laughs> yes. name, and then and then that sort of means everything, right? Like if if people who get into things like Black Lives Matter, they're like, oh well, it's a communist organization, and you're like, but is it? And they're like, well, one person <laughs> who's a part of it believes in communism, and you're like, so does that mean the whole thing is? And they're like, but you, it all gets lost in the sauce to me a little bit, and it's, mm -hmm. I I felt like that resonated when I read those parts, those those first few chapters about the libertarians, and thought, I feel like that's the same problem they have. There's no actual clear sort of set out set of ideas and, and yet it, it is still like a lot of other things it is seemingly pretty popular and it seems to be pretty widespread which i mean is that something you've noticed have you noticed that it seems that libertarianism seems to be you know uh sort of in every corner of the country even to a small degree or i mean certainly in new hampshire it is building momentum and building steam uh, i do kind of feel like some it's a blurry line sometimes between libertarianism and, and maybe like uh, the, uh, not the majority, but the plurality of libertarians right. probably are nearly indistinguishable from very conservative Republicans. You know, like, uh, again, back, back to like the Tea Party guys, you know, like yeah. if, um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think, they're having a moment in the sun right now to an extent, or their ideas are having a moment in the sun. But 
you know, the more thoughtful, uh, kind of like philosophically minded libertarians, um, you know, kind of recognize that um, there's a lot of illogic happening, even you know, on the right uh, right now with, with uh, national discussions. And, and that's and that's something that I, I, I noticed you, you touched on that pretty uh, pretty often as well is that they are very logic driven people that mm-hmm. that that seems to be that they they try to see the world from a perspective of emotion removed and that therefore the that's sort of the the principle they seem to abide by that it's only logical that the freer people are the happier they'll be they'll be but there's one thing i I was curious about which is did you notice i mean I guess we've already touched on it a little bit, but have you noticed? a lot of the contradictions in, in sort of their outlook on the world. As, as I sort of read through the original article and as I'm reading through the book, I'm starting to think as much as they try to live completely free and, and free of all regulations, all that, does it not also somewhat seem sometimes like maybe there's a yearning for some of that societal structure still that, that it's almost inescapable that you, you can try to be as free as you want, but you have to, you still have to have some sort of scaffolding for your society. Is that something you noticed when you were there? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know uh, that I ever thought about it in precisely those terms, but I, th- I think you're you're spot on with that. Um, you know, there, there's a. It reminds me of a song lyric. I think it was maybe King Missile. So, you know, uh, I want to be different, like all of the other different people. You know, <laughs> uh, and I think there is this. It's weird. There's like this strong brand of nonconformism. Uh, you know, uh, a, a real urge to be independent and to be your own person. But there's also that very human need for kind of like reinforcement of your ideas. And so, you know, what you wind up doing oftentimes, and, you know, I think we're all uh, subject to this at some point. You know, we say like, you know, like, uh, hey, you know, I'm just uh, not going to wear underpants today. And... Uh, I don't care what you think about it because right. I've thought it through very thoroughly and, you know, airing out is better than, than cloistering. Right. right. Uh, and that'll, that'll pass for a little bit. And then at some point I'm going to want you to tell me that it's okay for me to <laughs> not wear underwear. Yes. And then I'm going to want you to not wear underwear. Right. Right. And it's sort <laughs> right? Of, it, as individual as people can be, they also want to feel like they're not alone, I guess, which is yeah. sort yeah. of the interesting perspective that you get on that. It was, was there, Anything that you admire about the whole libertarian? I, I mean, I, I know when I think about it that it, it is, there's something that's sort of, I don't know, it, it's, it's, like being, it's like on the road, it's like a Jack Kerouac thing. Like you, you kind of admire this whole like freedom to, to just blaze out a trail, you know, and, and to, to live off the land. And it's almost like, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a city person. I've been a city person my whole life mm-hmm. that there's always sort of, I dream of the like, I'd love to go move to the, middle of nowhere and you know, have a cabin and do it. You, you fantasize about it. Is there anything that you feel like you sort of admire or, or envy about, about the way they live? Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, there are values that they celebrate that I think are undeniably good values. You know, like, like who doesn't want to encourage uh, self-sufficiency, independence, uh, uh, rational thinking, you know, yeah. who, who doesn't want to see individuality in the world, right? Um, uh, yeah, they're, they're against kind of like the homogenization of culture and thought. And just at its core, you know, critical thinking and rationality, um, 
those are not used enough in, in discourse um, right. you know, on, on either the left or the right. I think we often get kind of like trapped into uh, dogma, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that is consistent with our beliefs, even though it may not, uh, when, when you break it down, it may not withstand scrutiny. Right. And I think um, they are more able to self-scrutinize than the average person. And so I think that that is uh, a good trait to have. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I would definitely agree with that. The whole, the whole idea that you just sort of, it seems like so many times now when, when you ever see a story that, that breaks that you kind of already know. And one of the reasons I get sick of sort of, of, of being on Twitter and stuff like that is that you already know what everybody's going to say about everything almost right away, <laughs> right? Yeah. That you see a story break and then you see, uh, you see, you know, all the, all the commentators and the talking heads and you think, I already know what every single one of you thinks about this matter. <laughs> and it's only really newsworthy anymore when somebody says something that wasn't what everybody thought they were going to say. And, and then that's when it's like, Oh, well, what did they mean? Or what does that mean about them? And, like, what does that say about their ideal? And you're like, is it so wrong that somebody might go, actually, this time I think I deviate. So, yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think that's a very good point. But uh, the, the next thing I sort of wanted to move on to about the book was the bears, because it's, it's it was such an interesting piece of this so far is, is I didn't realize how little was known about their behavior um, and, and sort of the kind of tricks that they play on and, and the way they, there's their intelligence sort of works. You, uh, you spoke to a guy who was an expert on the mat on, on bears, right? And mm-hmm. was, did, did your perceptions of the animal change? I mean, I have to imagine that, that the things you learned just being there in the stories and all that, but what really surprised you about bears once you started I mean, I, learning more? I've always been like enthusiastic about, you know, biology and, and uh, learning about different species and, and that kind of thing that that's just kind of like a personal passion of mine. Right. Um, so I knew, you know, that bears are smart, that they have a basic problem solving capacity uh, that a lot of more instinct driven animals do not. Right. You know, uh, a deer is not going to figure out how to unscrew a, uh, a jar of cookies, you know, right. a bear is going to figure that out like, like an octopus yeah. or a crow. Um, so I knew they, they were in that, that like uh, that sector of the animal world that employs critical thought. But I was really blown away when I read the books by uh, the expert that you mentioned, Ben Killam, and, and spoke mm-hmm. with him and spoke to the state bear biologist, Andy Timmons, um, and, and some other folks in the field. Like, bears are like geniuses. And mm-hmm. like, and this is the other thing, a lot of smart animals, like, they're really smart because right. they're right. not like killing machines. Right. Bears are both. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. right like i'm not that scared if a crow is i mean i'm scared if a crow attacks me if i'm being honest but uh i'm gonna beat the crow off i'm not right. i'm not gonna beat the bear off no um no. and bears are scary smart um uh studies have shown that they might have a better grasp of things like numbers like abstract uh concepts and a sense of self than uh some of the great apes do you know, they, they might be smarter than a gorilla. Uh, uh, some of them, uh, uh, you know, they, they can't do sign language, but that's mostly because they don't have fingers. If they had fingers, they could probably out sign language Coco. Right. Uh, right. 
And the other thing, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, they, they have like a, a, a unique local culture and society, right? right. And yeah. so uh, there are instances, documented instances, where like a bear will um, realize that it can't take care of its young, go to another bear that it has friendly relations with, and basically foster its young off on that bear and that bear will do it because it knows that it might need the favor return someday. That's uh, so just amazing. I, I thought the, the story, the one story you tell early on in the book, uh, I can't remember which person was whose house you were at, but they said that the, the middle of the night, and, and I, I, this, is, this is just one of many stories that people can enjoy in this book. And, and they said in the middle of the night, they, they thought they heard a bear or something out there. There was a snowy, and uh, he was snooping around the fence looking for something to eat. And you say that a car passed by and the headlights were about to shine on him. And you, you describe it and it's it, the way you described it in the book was perfect because you said it was like a prisoner trying to make a prison break along the highway. Right. As you said, he, the bear dropped flat and, and, hot and hid from the, the headlights of the car until it passed and then sprung back up and went back to searching that he, he really he saw trouble coming and recognized the headlights and knew that, you know, people would be able to see him if he was caught in those headlights and, and did a sort of complete flatten out and, and thought, <laughs> I'm going to wait till they're gone and then jump back up and went, OK, back just looking for food. And the, these are some of the stories that I, I found so interesting about the bears themselves in this in this book is is exactly what you're saying. The, the fact that they are seemingly capable of abstract thought. And, and maybe the, I know you said uh, the, the bear expert, uh, uh, sorry, you said it was Killam again? Was ben Killam. Ben yeah. Killam, yeah. You said he, that, that one of the things, a lot of the theories that he has sort of get refuted in the same sense that as you compared him to Jane Goodall with, with uh, her research. And you said a lot of it gets disputed because it hasn't been verified or hasn't been replicated. And maybe that just seems to be the problem that with, nobody's ever been able to truly study bears to the extent that that would prove these sorts of concepts, but it, it is amazing that how many of these stories, they seem to have this ability. You also say that they, they could remember long-term that they could sort of recall past memories and all this stuff. You, again, with the counting, I think you said that one, one resident was, was giving the bears cookies and the one bear would notice when the amount of cookies given was, was a little short each time they could count <laughs> yeah. that this isn't the same amount you usually give me. And it's, it's really it's incredible, really. It's incredible, really. It's I think it I think especially for a, you know a city person like me to hear that about you know a forest animal like that that they can really sort of see the world in a way that we sort of attribute human qualities to them like that. That it's 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 very it is very abstract and that it is sort of a, the, the anthropomorphizing of of bears, except they're really doing some of this stuff and they are very clever. <laughs> And they are very, you know, it's like out of the jungle book or something right? like yeah, that. But. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're uh, they are, they're, they're just crazy smart. Um, they can think their way out of a lot of uh, different situations. Um, you know, they're famous for getting into places that you didn't think they could get into. Um, and they can be very selective about, who they approach and who they don't approach, you know, in terms of like, you know, what, what's a good food source? Yeah, you know, to be able to put yourself into the mind of a human and know that like that human bears me ill will, but that other human does not. Yeah. Or, um, you know, if that light shines on me, okay. then we'll be able to see me. Like most of us can't 
or, yeah, not most of us, but <laughs> most of us species uh, can't think outside of our own head that way. But apparently yeah. bears can. Yeah, I think that you, you describe numerous times uh, when people are telling you stories of their encounters with the bears that there's this uh, there's this moment that seems to happen every time where where they, they sort of get in conflict or they'll see one in the distance or they'll be standing and they'll say, every time that the bears, they have an encounter, the bear seems to stop and sort of contemplate its current situation and, and sort of look around and think, hmm, is this worth it for me? They sort of do this sort of cost benefit analysis of their situation of, you know, is this, could I take this guy? Could I, could I get something good out of it in the end? Will I get a meal? Will I get hurt? Will I, and then they sort of make a decision and meander off if they so choose or, or, you know, and then at the same time, like you said before, they are also incredibly big and powerful and fast and, and, and as much as they're sort of contemplative sometimes, there's also cases of them barreling right into somebody and, and, and attacking some or swooping through and picking up a pet and running off. It's, it's yeah. an amazing, it's very, it's an amazing analysis of, of an animal that I think most people just sort of disregard as a, a big hulking forest creature. They don't really, they don't really attribute any sort of those things to it, but of, of all mm-hmm. the bear stories you heard, which, which one is your, is your favorite or stuck with you the most? Oh my God. There, there are so many great uh, stories that I heard. Um, probably my favorite one is, um, I don't think you're quite there yet on chapter eight, but there's a woman uh, named Diane Burrington. Right. She wakes up in her farmhouse uh, at about you know, 5.30 in the morning and she hears a commotion out in the sheep pen. And so she, she goes running out there in her nightgown, bare feet, uh, holding two guns in her two hands. <laughs> and she doesn't know what she's going to find. And she finds that one of her sheep has gotten tangled in the, uh, the electric fence because it was panicked trying to get away from this bear. And the right. bear is now threatening this sheep. And when the bear sees the human charging towards it, the bear like goes off to another corner of the sheep pen maybe in the hopes of getting uh, another, uh, another sheep. And Diane, the woman, she uh, takes some snips out of her pocket and uh, releases the sheep so that the sheep won't strangle itself. Right. And while right. Diane is doing that, uh, Diane owns a llama named Hurricane. And Hurricane has been raised with a sheep. So Hurricane thinks that uh, he is a sheep. And he has some natural protective llama instincts. And so when Diane gets there as backup, uh, Hurricane the llama charges after the bear. And the bear is intimidated because the llama's bigger than a bear after all. Right. Uh, and plus there's this human there with guns. So the bear takes off uh, and the llama is chasing the bear down uh, the, the hillside and Diane is uh, really worried that her llama is going to get mauled. And so she's like, yeah, like, hurricane, no. And she's like yeah. chasing after it. But she's like a pathetically distant third as, as they're like, yeah, streaking across the grass. And then she says, oh, no, the bear is going to hit the fence on the far side of the pasture. Then it's going to have nowhere to go. And it's going to turn and it's going to get hurricane. Right. And uh, sure enough, uh, the bear gets to the end of the pasture and it kind of like bounces off the, um, the, the fencing and then it turns and launches itself at the llama. And uh, Diane says, and that's when I got to see everything I'd ever read about llamas. 
And so Hurricane basically, can I swear on this podcast? Sure, go nuts. Hurricane kicks the shit out of this bear. <laughs> he just starts whirling around, lashing out with his hooves, uh, lashing, you know, kicking the bear in the face and the wow. chest. And the bear is like, has no idea what's going on. It's totally outmatched and outclassed by this llama. <laughs> and so after, uh, yeah, it doesn't basically even injure uh, Hurricane at all. Wow. Uh, and and it, uh, eventually manages to, to slink away without sustaining serious injury. But, that is amazing. That must be local legend or something around there now, is it not? I, you know, uh, I've never heard it except for out of Diane's mouth. Really? Nobody else ever mentioned it to me, which I wow. think just kind of goes to show how, how rich the tapestry is there. <laughs> right. There's probably a lot of stories to compete with, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Now, what, what, you know, what, what are you hoping that people will get out of reading this book? Oh man. Well, I, I hope that they will most of all be entertained, right. will, uh, you know, enjoy themselves as a reader. I think there are far too many books out there uh, that feel like work. And, and right. I want this to not be work. I want this to be something that they can read and be excited about and, and tell these nutty stories from to their friends. Uh, beyond that, I would like them to, uh, learn about this place where a town thought that the right course of action was to cut all the rules and to cut all the taxes and to kind of have that every man for themselves attitude and realize how spectacularly that approach failed. Right. You know, to, to the extent that you had, uh, you know, an escalating series of bear problems. And then that's like one colorful example, but right. uh, road services broke down. Uh, people couldn't get plowed out. Uh, they, they, they were stuck in their dirt roads from washouts because you know, the, the town wasn't paying the road crew enough to, to come and reconnect them with society. Yeah. Uh, the, the municipal offices had like torrents of ants <laughs> Uh, coming into it. You know, I mean, they, they turned off the street lights yeah. in this town uh, so that, you know, there, there weren't even any street lights because they didn't want to pay the electricity for it. And it's just absurd. It, you know, yeah. we, we like to talk about survival of the fittest and, and Darwinism, but in fact, right. even in the animal world, there is a lot more cooperation and community building uh, than there is uh, uh, individualism. Right. And that's, and that's the thing I really, I think I was, I, as I'm making my way through the book, I started to really get that feeling right away. So I thought this feels like a story that's going to end up, the moral of it is going to be, you need people more than you think you do. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's funny that it, we were saying before that they were looking for a place to sort of forge the, the sort of example of how libertarianism will work in the world. And it seems like what the, the lesson they're learning here is that, you really do need society as much as you may not like a lot of these things. You kind of need it. You kind of need taxes to pay for public school or public services and, and roads and, you know, the electricity, like if nobody pays for anything, then there's not going to be anything. And as much as they were aiming to forge this town in, in the middle of the wilderness and prove that it works, they can't get over the hurdle of fending off the bears. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's they're spending instead of spending all this time sort of building it up in a way that would show that it works. It, they, they can't get over this basic security problem, which is that <laughs> people all around here just keep having to deal with giant bears snooping on their property and eating their food and doing all this stuff. It's it's an amazing story. Uh, and and I, I really encourage everybody who's listening to 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 please read this book, please pre-order it. Or if you're listening after it's already out, 
after September 15th, just go buy it from your local bookstore, not Amazon. Um, so I'll say it again. Dan, there's a special place in heaven for you. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank well, you I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I'll say it again. The name of the book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. And the release date is September 15th. So again, pre-order. Buy it if it's already out by the time you hear this show. And, and now I just, I sort of wanted to move on to some more sort of personal journalistic questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I noticed about when I was looking you up a little bit and I was reading your Twitter profile and your website and all that stuff was you're very forward about your past jobs, which, which <laughs> is something I don't see almost ever. I feel like so often people are so in a rush to get out of the, the regular working world into a, you know, a media career or, or, or be a YouTuber or something like that, that mm-hmm. they sort of they sort of try to get away from that so quickly. You, you really put it right up front. You, you say you're a former stock boy and you've done all these <laughs> sorts of jobs and all. It, it, it's amazing. Now, what, what made you want to get into writing and journalism? Is this something you've always done? Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to be a writer. You know, not necessarily journalism, but I've always wanted to tell stories. Right. Um, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I, I wrote a 32-page book about an elf I don't want to brag, but he really kicked <laughs> these monsters' asses, you know. Um, so, like, yeah, I, it's always kind of, like, been what I wanted to do. But I, I never felt like I could connect with it professionally. You know, it just right. seemed like being paid to write was something that you needed special training and connections and stuff that I didn't have and didn't even know how to go about getting. Right. And so, in the meantime, I, I just kind of, like, meandered through all of these other jobs. Um, you know, I, I uh, drove a cab for a while, you know, worked in the restaurants, uh, worked as a social worker with a, a, a boy with autism. Um, you know, I, I really grew up um, in a blue collar community uh, to a blue collar family. Uh, and when I was in my uh, mid-20s, I was basically like a, a college dropout, uh, kind, of, kind of like drifting through these aimless jobs. I actually, I worked as a uh, poker player for five years. I made a living as a poker player. Wow. Was that in the boom, the sort of poker boom of the yes. early yeah, yeah, 2000s? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then they changed the laws and that kind of like, you know, poker's like a little bit of like a pyramid scheme and that the older players prey on the, the newer players. Right, right. And uh, we ran out of newer players. <laughs> and so, so when we started eating each other, uh, that, that was too uncomfortable for me. Um, that's, a bit of, that's a bit libertarian, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, busted. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, so, so like I... I think like one of my kind of like guiding compasses in, in life has been a celebration of kind of like blue collar values. Right. Um, I am very resistant to the idea that uh, an education is the only way to educate yourself. Right. Your brother, my brother and I, my brother and you would, would get along exceedingly well on that front right there. So. Yeah, like, yeah, like, certainly I, I value uh, college and, and what college I had. Uh, if I had a kid, I would be begging that kid to go to college um, but because of the doors that it opens. But right. uh, that's a professional thing. I think that there's so many other avenues to, to personal growth and to... Oh, yeah. um, yeah, I know a lot of very smart people who don't have any sort of degree, even a high school one. Yeah. 
and I know a lot of Longhead PhDs. Um, uh, you know what? That's that's a point I will I will second absolutely. I I was a person that I went to a university at a high school because I felt like I had to. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, everybody else is doing it. I should just go. <laughs> And it's, it's, I'm one of those people who doesn't use the degree he went to school for. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's one of those things where I look back and I go, you know, academically, it wasn't my thing. I was a bad student and all that, but it's, you know, what people always say, right. It's the experience. If, if you don't get the academic mm -hmm. side of it, then you got to get the experience side of it. You got to grow from it and all that. And, and I, I agree. I think, I think as you get older, you know, I mean, I'm, I just, I'm only 29 now, but you know, the past four or five years, one of the things that I've, I've tried to do a lot more was just reading books which mm -hmm. is, you know, something as simple as that, 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 you know, that's up to you. That's up to your free time. You can also, you know, the, the world is at our fingertips with our phones and the internet now, and you can learn anything uh, at any time. That's sort of the premise of my show is, is it's sort of me picking a story at a time and going, what's this? Let's find out. Here's what I found and giving it up to people as well. So yeah, yeah I really, I really like that idea that you, it, it, you know, growth and learning and, and getting smarter quote unquote is, is really in the hands of everybody and it doesn't have to be so formal really yeah yeah and i, I think too like uh that, this is a good point to say that the podcast that you do the way it ranges so broadly over so many topics uh so that it kind of like serves this um kind of like natural curiosity uh about the world and yet is also uh, interdisciplinary you know i i feel like you know, if you really want to learn something new about microbiology, you got to devote your whole life to microbiology, right? right? And that is a punishing, uh, arduous, hopefully rewarding cor life course for the person who sets themselves on it. Um, but I think most people are just kind of like by their nature, kind of more generalist. Right. And there is a lot of value to be had from uh people who can see that something like uh, team A is similar to something like group B. Right. And, yeah. and kind of like draw those connections and see, you know, systems and models and commonalities yeah. that, that can help us kind of uh, understand a system maybe even before we, we've studied it that closely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, uh, I think that's something I've learned over the course of doing the show a little bit is, is exactly that. I worried at first that it was too vague right? Because podcasting can be very niche at times. There are people who are like, oh, I, you know, I, I change brake pads. So here's a brake pad podcast. And you're like, wow, there's a ton of people who might be into that and they'll, they'll jump. And it's great. And it's, it, when I started, I was like, oh, am I, am I being too broad and all that? And as I've gone on, I've started to think like, you know, yeah, there are actually people out there who want to know a little bit more about things, you know, but they can't dedicate their whole life to them. And I can't either. So you're right. I think there's, and I especially think in this age with, with the access to information, there is a little bit more of a curiosity with people these days that there's a lot more people who are maybe, you know, tired of nothing but memes and, you know, hashtags and scrolling on mm -hmm. your Instagram that, that there's maybe a little bit more of, I guess what you might consider like jeopardy knowledge, right? Where, you know, a little bit of everything <laughs> as opposed to just knowing so much about just one thing. So yeah, no, I, I, I can get behind that idea, but I want to get back to, to those early jobs because those jobs you worked coming up and all that, and you, and you're very forward with them. Is there, this is sort of the obvious question, but uh, you know, what aspects of, of those jobs, those, those previous, you know, things you've done for a living, what have, what have stuck with you and what is sort of, what have you sort of carried over into your, journalism and writing career? Um, I think probably 
it put me into so many different bubbles and, and kind of categories of people, right. you know, I, that I think I, I really kind of like um, got to really understand that people are not always what they seem uh, on first glance. You know, I, I think I really got uh, the ability to get beyond a stereotype of a person mm-hmm. and, and recognize that, uh, you know, people from all walks of lives, uh, from, from all different backgrounds and, and philosophies and all that, um, they have both good and bad qualities. And so I think it's helped me not to, you know, lionize our, our uh, martyrs <laughs> too, too much, uh, but also not to, uh, be too harsh with the the people that we dislike. You know, right. I, when I write about someone, I always kind of try to say something a little good and a little bad about each person because, you know, that's that's what we are, isn't it? Yeah, aren't we all like a little good? Yeah, and a little well, bad? Everybody's <laughs> a bit of a mixed bag and all that. And and I did say that at the start, and that's I think a good good time to reiterate that point that it, this book you've written is is written very honestly from your perspective that there, um, I think one thing that sticks out to me when I'm thinking off the top of my head was uh, the, the one guy's telling you the story about how he tried to, he's had a, be- a bear was running away uh, and he tried, he tried to fire a shot to hit him, but he was a very proud sort of sharpshooting guy and he, he couldn't make the shot. And, and he said, yeah, it was dark. I couldn't hit him. And, uh, you know, it was too hard of a shot. And you describe in the book, you said, you know, I looked off in the, I looked off in the distance with a contemplative look about something I knew nothing about and agreed, you know, yeah, it's a tough one. And I thought that was very, it's a very <laughs> honest perspective to say, I don't know, I, I cannot possibly relate to firing a, a giant hand cannon magnum at a, at a <laughs> enormous bear and not making the shot and then feeling bad about it. Yeah, that's, that's tough, but I'll still try to empathize with the person I'm with. That's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I, I like that character, even though uh, he is, you know, so, some might blame for all the, all the problems in, in the town that John Baviar's, right. but you know, he, he's got some human failings. And one of them is if he's talking about doing a manly activity, like shooting a bear, uh, he doesn't want you thinking he's a bad marksman, right? right? <laughs> and I, in my absurdity and foolishness, don't want him to know that I don't know anything about shooting anything, right? Right. You're both sort of you're both sort of doing this social dance around each yeah, other. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, we're 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 silly. We're all silly. We're oh, silly beings. <laughs> that I can absolutely agree with. Now, w- w- when you're pursuing a story, what's your favorite part of, of chasing down a lead or, or writing a story? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me, my favorite part is usually after the reporting has been done. And, you know, by, by the reporting, I mean, like, after I've gone out and done the interviews, after I've done the research, um, you know, I do a very kind of like mechanical process of transcribing every interview uh, down, you know, to, to the, the last word, um, accumulating all the research that I think I might want to cite. And, and, you know, so I wind up with a big, massive doc file, right? And it's just full of, of 10 times the information that I want. Right. And then as I start to kind of squeeze and massage that down, um, and find the themes and the characters and the arc that 
uh, emerge from that from that process. I take a lot of joy in that. You know, when, when I I realize that like, oh, you know, this person, uh, you know, they said that they have this like weird attachment to their friend. Uh, you know, but then like three days ago they mentioned that they lost their brother when they were eleven. You know, yeah, well, whatever it is. You know. Yeah. Uh, so something that allows me to infer kind of like a greater meaning from the small details. Um, uh, that brings me a lot of joy. And the other thing is like, when I get it down to the point where I can um, spend a lot of time and energy polishing the, the words themselves, mm-hmm. you know, to come up with a little clever turn of phrase uh, or to, you know, be able to make a joke or an observation and, and try to craft the sentence in such a way that it sounds like the voice in my own head if I'm, if I'm telling a joke or, or saying something. Um, and sometimes, you know, you hit on that and sometimes you miss. But when you hit, it, it feels great. Uh, yeah, and then it's like, oh, I can't wait for someone to read this and tell me how awesome I am. That's really, it's a, it's a bit of a, putting a puzzle together to get sort of the sort of the bigger picture to formulate for you or, or yeah, in a sense, but also, I guess, unlike a puzzle, you can sort of change the pieces and make it look better as you go. Right. If you, yeah. if you can word it right. I, I know the one thing I noticed that um, so often because I'm a procrastinator, I'll write a full script for a show and all that. And mm-hmm. I always think that all the best episodes I've ever written or all the ones I've had the best feedback on are always the ones that I meticulously edited. The ones, the more yeah. editing I did, the better it came out in the end. And I'm like, that's a pretty easy formula to go with there. If you want a good episode, <laughs> put more time in, do some more editing. It'll come out at the end. Cause you're right. I, 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 I can totally understand that you read a sentence or you write a sentence or it's in your head and you write it out and you think that's good. And then when you read it back a day later, you're like, that's not good. That's that, yeah. that can be a lot better. And you, you write it again and you're like, Oh, that sounds great. Or sometimes, you know, you, you'll, I'll be mm-hmm. recording and I'll think, uh, I'll stop mid-recording and go, no, because I've got a better one now. And I go, I quickly type it out and go, all right, here we go. Now we got it. So I absolutely, I absolutely understand that as well. And it, yeah, I guess on know, that, yeah, go ahead. I, I just like to, to respond to that and say like, you know, like some people, uh, they fall into that trap where they cannot release it until it is perfect, perfect, perfect. Right. And I feel like there's a real natural tension there. You want your podcast to be uh, published at some point, right? That would and be I nice. gotta let my story go at some point. Yeah. Um, and I know creative people uh, who struggle uh, not because they lack the talent, but because almost like they have too much talent and discretion, and uh, you know, will will uh, work until their grave trying to get that that perfect story together. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, I guess it's sort of the, the quantity quality balance, I guess you could call it right that it seems like it's exactly that I have times where I, I think I could edit this again, but also I'm like, you know, I, I could just record it and put it out and then start on a new story and, and, and take a new crack at everything. And, and hopefully that will be, I guess, different philosophies on improvement mm-hmm. like that, right? If you, you can meticulously edit a story until it's so overwritten or so over edited, or you could, you could get to a decent point that you feel comfortable with, put it out, see what you get and then start anew mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of, I guess the variety is another way to improve. That's, that's an interesting philosophy. And that's actually, a, I actually kind of wanted to ask a little bit of something like that. You know, you, you've been doing this for a while now. Is there any sort of general advice or tricks of the trade or something like that, that, that you have for people who want to write or, or get into journalism or maybe struggle with motivation? Is there anything that you've sort of found over the years is a, is a key for you? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, that that's a great question. I think one, I would always recommend trying to write something for somebody else, you know, ideally your local newspaper. Um, you know, the, the pay is not great, but it can be very rewarding when you're starting out in your career, when all you have is a, a drawer or a hard drive full of, you know, uh, stories about when you broke up with somebody <laughs> or, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, to go out and get like kind of like a, a clear cut directive from an editor and to go through that process, I think is really rewarding. Um, and the other thing that I would say is um, I would encourage people to write for a different reason than they typically write for. You know, so if you're someone out there and you like to write um, uh, poems because you uh, like to just express yourself in that way and it helps to clarify your thinking for yourself, uh, I would encourage you to write, you know, maybe an essay for somebody else or, you know, uh, or for a local newspaper. And if you're somebody who maybe like writes police reports as part of your job, uh, that has probably given you a great capacity to uh, write concisely and clearly and accurately. Uh, so I would challenge you to take those skills into a completely different arena and, you know, submit a short story to a short story uh, uh, publisher or contest or something. And that seems like, that seems like it's an idea that, that I've at least heard before in different aspects. Like, uh, one thing I always remember is I, I read a study once they said that, that athletes, like high school athletes, the ones that seem to do the best with sort of finite tasks in sports, the more fine skills are the ones that play multiple sports, right? Ah. The, the people, the athletes that, that seem to find the most success with the technical skills are the ones who do different sports because it works different parts of the brain and it, and it works different sort of movement skills and different sort of hand-eye coordination pieces that pe the more sports you play the better you'll be overall because of that variety and i think that's i think that's true in a lot of things i think that uh, you know something for me personally recently has been reading um you mm -hmm. know I, i've been you said it earlier and i i, I was, it was dead on man that sometimes when you read especially if you're trying to like you know oh, i'm trying to learn new things it can feel a little bit like work that you try to mm -hmm. read you know intellectual or academic sort of stuff or you know the thick famous texts of, of the humanity and all if you're trying to read Dostoevsky and yeah, like, and you just, you're like, I want to read this cause it seems like it'll it's, it's the right thing to do. And then it turns into a chore and it's like, I, I, I was having that problem for a bit and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to the bookstore and I'm going to, I'm going to grab like a, a sci-fi fantasy fiction. Just give me something fun that mm -hmm. I can just sort of get my brain back into reading words that are, that are just for enjoyment. And it's, it's something I, I immediately noticed about your book was I thought, this doesn't feel like it's, it's a story about, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, there's aspects of political ideology and, and a little bit of that sort of biology of the bears. Mm -hmm. It's got the, the intellectual sort of tinge to it, but it's written in a way that is a, a sort of a very charming, you know, tale of people and right that mixed bag that people are and all that. And I think yeah, it's, it's, it's very nerd. enjoyable. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a very enjoyable way. And I, and I think if, if you want to learn a little bit and you want to also sort of be charmed by these stories of the people who live in the woods, you know, I guess, then, <laughs> then it's a great book for that. So, no, I, I love that idea, that, that variety, and that especially when writing, it's sort of, you know, you, I guess I guess is sort of the word of the episode here, but pigeonhole yourself, right? If you yeah. keep writing the same thing again and again, then your creative juices are only ever flowing into the same. You, you got to sort of, 
give yourself a little variety to, to sort of branch yourself out, I guess. Yeah, well, one of my best writing tricks actually came from a pulp crime uh, series, uh, like, like the Parker series. Um, oh God, I'm trying to remember the author. It's Donald Westlake's pen name. Uh, so he wrote all, he wrote like, you know, maybe like 20 Parker books. And they're all right. about this tough guy, Parker, who was uh, played by Mel Gibson in the movie adaptation, Payback. Um, and every one of those uh, 16 or 20 Parker novels starts with a sentence uh, that goes something like this. Like, it'll say like, you know, like, as Parker uh, dove behind the moldering green couch, a bullet slammed into the wall above him, right? <laughs> and so the sentence construction, it's always as event A happened, event B happened. Right. And if you can open a story with that, by the time the reader gets to the second sentence, two things have already happened. <laughs> like, that's fantastic. They're involved. They're invested. Yeah, there's, you've already told a story, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I, I love applying that sort of lesson or, you know, like character descriptions or, or stuff like that to journalism. And, and the other thing I would say is the, the dangers of, like, writing um you know journalism all the time is it's very easy to kind of like fall into a trap where it kind of like poisons and and makes rigid what you yeah. feel like you can do right and i think that's kind of what you were alluding to and maybe somebody who doesn't write that much but reads a lot i don't know maybe i'm just more impressionable but like if i read a big book by an author uh for depending on how much of an impression that book made on me i find my own internal narrative voice in that author's voice. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like, like I, I hear Stephen King narrating myself right. <laughs> uh, as, I, as I go throughout my day. You right. Know, like I, I've had on. phases. I've had phases where I've read a lot of Vonnegut and then I start realizing I'm looking at the world through this sort of satirical, like, yeah. like, like that sort of everything is absurd and I don't know how to shake. Like he's, he's in the back of my head cracking jokes <laughs> about everything I'm saying. And I'm like, get out of there. Like I need yeah, something yeah, serious. Right. And at some point, you know, it'll fade, it'll kind of like merge with your right. more general consciousness and, and maybe you'll retain some little piece of it, which is good and enriching. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think you get that from everything. Even more. I yeah. think you get that from everything you write or you read or you watch, you know, people who are into a lot of TV and movies. I'm like, if you, if you really are doing, taking in a lot of, con, you know, your, if your content diet, I guess you could call it, is, <laughs> is something you're enjoying, you're going to sort of become a little bit of an amalgamation of those things, those different voices, those different perspectives. So I always... I think one thing I, I, I discussed with a few friends back when the, sort of the whole quarantine thing started was, you know, it, we're all stuck in our home doing whatever we can to stay entertained. And I said, maybe this is a good time for everybody to reevaluate their content diet, right? If you're, if you're doing nothing but taking in Instagram and, and scrolling through Twitter and all that stuff, that you may find that maybe you're more agitated or, you know, you're reading a lot of politics and now you're annoyed and now you're emotional and you're, you're hyped up and all that. And I'm like, maybe it's a good chance for everybody to think like, watch something new, watch something. If you feel kind of down about the situation, try something funny that you haven't watched before. Try something lighthearted or, or something that's more of a, you know, acute story about something small like that. You're, I love that, that you're right. So many times I think if, if you, especially when you read a book, cause it can take like a lot of hours to get through a real serious one that mm -hmm. so much of what you're taking in will leave marks on you that we sort of do pick up pieces of what we take in all the time. And I think depending on how you spend your time and, and what kind of media you intake, it will start to shape you a little bit as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's very important that we sort of, 
you know, uh, referee our, our content diets because it's, it seems yeah. like it's, it, you're right. It can be a very slippery slope if you're, if you're sort of doing nothing but reading news that makes you angry all the time or, or doing <laughs> stuff that's like my, people like to, you know, mindlessly scroll through, through memes. And I'm like, that's great. But if that's all you're doing, you might find that you feel like maybe you're lo- missing something along the way. So yeah, yeah that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, your, your focus can lapse and, and all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. And, and you know, I wanted to get back to the whole idea of journalism as a whole, because there's one, the one last area I want to touch on while we still got mm-hmm. some time here is, is mm-hmm. you've worked as a local news journalist and you've been doing it for a while. You've, you've won a lot of accolades for it. You, you've, you've got mm-hmm. a bit of a storied local news career going, but <laughs> this is, it, it's a field that absolutely has been suffering to say the least. And local news has, has been, I guess, sort of the downtrodden part of the American media sphere and it's been happening for quite a long time. So I, I was curious, you know, how has the business of local news changed, whether, you know, in terms of how you actually do the job or from the actual business side itself, just in your years working in the field? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I started working for newspapers right around 2010. Uh, so for me, it's been about uh, a decade of, of it. And by 2010, uh, the writing was on the wall. Uh, the, the decline in advertising revenue and subscriptions had already begun right. uh, for, for reasons that I, I'm sure most people are familiar with. Uh, you just basically can't compete with online sources. And uh, even if you can attract readers to your website, uh, they will not pay for that information uh, in the same way that they uh will or used to pay for a, a hard copy of the newspaper. Um, and so I've worked for different local newspapers that have responded to that in different ways. Um, some of them have really embraced the digital and gone very aggressively to build their digital audience and, and you know, uh, made digital oriented staff uh, you know, like, like uh, backdoor staff and even change news practices to kind of get with that to the minute news cycle. Right. Uh, where, yeah. All right. Well, when you come back from the fire, write the first two sentences of your story, throw mm-hmm. that up online. And then as you write more, add bits to it. Right. right. And, and, um, and I think even though that specific example, you come out with, you know, maybe a less good overall story, <laughs> Uh, I think it's good. I, I think that, that's an aggressive uh, way to stride forward and, and meet the future and uh, will help you to stay competitive. I've also worked in newsrooms that have done the opposite, where they've said, you know, every time the, the revenues decline, they just tighten their belt a little bit more. And, you know, a staff person leaves, they don't get replaced. Uh, the remaining staff have to write a little bit more every time that happens. And that's another way to get to a, a troublesome place where you used to be able to pay a reporter to spend a week on a story. Now you're asking that reporter to write two stories a day. You know, that, that's kind of like the, the, the bad end of that cycle. And, um, you know, and, and it's rough and it's depressing. And there's a lot of science out there uh, and studies that show that Local journalism provides a really important service to the to the world uh, that that they're writing. Um, there was a study that showed that government contracts were higher 
for the same services in places that did not have local journalists, right. simply right. because the public officials uh, knew that nobody was watching. You right. know, right. Uh, you, you're going you're to uh, go through the competitive bid process a lot more diligently if you know there's a, a local reporter uh, showing up at town hall and breathing down your neck and asking those questions. Uh, so they play a really vital role. And they're also kind of like a, a cementing uh, community glue. Uh, they're, they're the thing that uh, makes us a, a series of individual communities and not just a bunch of McDonald's hubs. Right. You know, right. They, they provide some identity and voice to their local community. Well, I think there's, you touched on so many different points there that I, I really like. And, and, you know, again, first of all, uh, you know, I try to end every episode that I do with, uh, you know, I've never asked for money from this show at all. I know a lot of people in the podcasting game, they're very quick to, to try to find some sort of financial benefit from it. But mm-hmm. for me, it's always been the fact that like, I can't do the show that I do without other people's work. So I don't, I've never asked for, for any dollars from it because to be frank, I don't feel like I deserve it. So I try to end every episode by say, reminding people right before, right before I, you know, cut them off for the episode. I always say, if you find quality journalism or content, people who are actually out there, make sure you financially support them because without them, what do I have? Like I, I sit in my apartment and I, I read, I read 50 different stories to try to piece little pieces together to have some sort of narrative that, that makes sense. But that's that, you know, as much as it's like, yeah, it's a lot of work to do this podcast. It's not nearly the work that it is to find those stories in the first place. So I always, I always try to advocate for that aspect of it. And I, I like what you said about, how important it is. I, th- I think uh, somebody I heard who put it in a very, very good way was, was John Oliver. He, he's mentioned it on his show a bunch of times. And I know one time he said they did a mashup of clips and they said, if you don't think local news is important, then like, just watch this. And it was a, a mashup of all the major news networks, you know, ABC and NBC and uh, CNN, Fox and all them, all of them starting their leads with their stories, which, you know, according to the, you know, so-and-so, you know, the Des Moines, yeah. you know, free press or something like yeah. they go through all these things and all of them are from local news. You know, all of them are, are, are small beat reporters, people who chase stories like yourself, who then, you know, if that story gets picked up and syndicated and, and run nationally, now it's on, you know, the fancy networks with all the fancy people talking <laughs> about the story. And it's, it's amazing that a couple of things I was thinking was, was one, you're right. When they're, when they're, when you're chasing this up to the minute real time news, that there's not that thing that you said you enjoyed so much. There's not that sort of getting all these big piles of information and then sort of laying it out and, and piecing it together in a way that forms a, a relevant story. And there seems to be a lot of details that get lost along the way because of that. And, and it just, it just seems like that's an aspect that's, that's lost. But at the same time, I've started to notice maybe as I've read more news in the past few years, that when a story that was really rigorously uh, you know, researched and, and, and looked at, I think a good example was the New York times, I think maybe a year and a half ago did this massive bombshell report about how, you know, Donald Trump's whole life had been a, a tax fraud. You know, his mm-hmm. father had done, they, they, they broke this like 50 page story where they, they had found all of his finance and all these tax records and all this stuff. And it, it basically exposed that he was never, you know, he was never rich as he said he was his father, you know, use every tax trick in the books to keep their family from going bankrupt. And then I realized how shortly after I thought that didn't seem to, nobody seemed to notice that that story broke and it was talked about for about 40 seconds. And then the next story (laughs) broke. And I thought those, those three or four journalists who wrote that, they, they spent 
God knows how much time, months, years, even, uh, you know, accumulating data. And they put this masterpiece, you know, out into the world and people are like, well, did you read the headline? And you're like, but there's 50 (laughs) pages of stuff in there. You know, I was refreshed when reading the article that you based your book off of because I started, when I first opened it up and I was like, well, this is a big one. And I started reading and I thought, you know, it's been a while since I feel like I've really like been sort of lost in a long, well-researched article. They seem to sort of get... (laughs) Is, is that something that, that, you know, people who do writing these days sort of are, are conflicted by that, that even when you do put in the legwork, that it's, it's just not resonating with, with uh, you know, people who are taking it in quite the way it used to? Well, you, you know, some, some reporters um, really thrive on the idea of breaking news, the idea of current news. They love to go out there and chase the fire truck and get the, uh, you know, get, get the latest and, uh, that is also very, very needed and a very good skill set. And I love people who have enthusiasm and appetite for that. Um, but, you know, it's weird. Yeah, like sometimes you write a story that you don't think is going to be very uh, well noticed and you get a, a flood of response. Other times it's just like you say, you feel like you've done something important and it's like you, you threw it into a black hole. Right. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, I do think you you get more response typically from the bigger stories. You know, like uh, if you were to, to chart it out, probably the length and, and amount of time that went into a story does have some sort of relationship to the feedback that you get out, but it's, it's maybe not the most important factor. Like I'd, I'd get much more feedback if I started, you know, blogging Kim Kardashian news. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, and what you touched on, I, I wanted to say briefly too, um, a couple of examples in my career of things where like local journalism played a, a good role, you know, outside of like my award-winning stuff, but just like the little stuff. Once I remember a uh, police uh, force in the small town of Paris, Maine, uh, they had a new contract and so I took the new contract and the old contract, and I did a line-by-line reading of all 30 pages of the contract. Wow. And then I called up uh, the town manager, and I said, how come they're not getting uh, paid Martin Luther King Day off in- anymore? And he's like, oh, I'll get back to you. And what eventually transpired was that there was like a typo, and someone had just kind of accidentally written that out of the, oh, no. <laughs> out of the new deal. And... <laughs> So like, you know, it's so, so uh, stupid that like me, just some, some idiot reading in a newsroom, reading through, you know, with, with a fine eye on, on the uh, language can actually make a difference because that like preserved Martin Luther King Day for those, you know, three cops on that police force. Yeah. Um, and then another one, there was like a local uh, landowners association that uh, had a lake on their property and they were not allowing the public from the town to access that lake. And I went down to the, the paperwork uh, that was filed when the lake was first approved in like the 60s. And I read through that paperwork and I found that there was a provision in there that the public had to be granted access to the lake in perpetuity. And so because of that little reporting job, now the public can access that lake instead yeah. of you know, the, the, the rich uh, well i think i think maybe this is this is a completely bigger can of worms for another day but it's yeah. it seems to not be surprising that simultaneously the world is the world seems to be slowly being filled with 
powerful people exercising power and simultaneously is is seemingly losing the people who are supposed to hold them to account and and you know in relation to those two things is the the powerful people are are calling all the people who are typically like you say the the fact finders the truth tellers the people who write the stories there's they're you know pointing the finger at them and saying no those are the people who are who are bad they're they're the people who are really out to get you the common person and it's it seems to me that that is that is uh deliberate and and also not surprising at all that that the more unchecked and un sort of followed up with i guess that the people making important decisions are the more sort of corruption and 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 all that that's come along with it it's it seems to be very it seems to be kind of obvious in hindsight now that you know journalism is is under attack all over the world you know from a local up to a national level and simultaneously there seems to be sort of an unchecked runaway sort of you know inequality issue with you know with wealth across the globe and there's a, a rise of sort of authoritarian governments and it seems that those two things tend to kind of go hand in hand you're right that corruption at a local level or a national level or in the business world for example seems to flourish when there's not people you know with with the you know the microscope behind them looking at every piece going what's this what's this what's this yeah did you guys want to yeah. know about that so it's uh it, it's not surprising and it, it you know it's such important work and i i think it it's I hope that this is just a transitionary period, really, that this is sort of the digital age is still sort of settling in and, and we haven't quite figured it out yet of how that's going to work. Maybe maybe local investigative journalism really is now people on Twitter or something like that. It's Yeah, I, I think there, there, are, there are positive signs uh, that we could point to. If I could give one piece of advice to uh, journalists and, and journalism and uh, media outlets that are listening, uh, I would say to capitalize on the goodwill of the public that values your services, not by selling subscriptions and advertisements, or you know, in addition to selling subscriptions and advertisements, by doing fundraising drives, applying for public grants, and uh, allowing for donations and tip jars. I think there's a lot of goodwill out there. Journalists uh, are often resistant to that because they don't want to be beholden to those interests, but I think we see in public radio that that model can work really well. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would also encourage a lot more partnership with these digital entities that um, have taken away some of the attention and the limelight. And, and so, Dan, I would encourage you to call up your local newspaper and see if there is some uh, place where some sort of synergy can happen. Where that would be, that would be great. That local newspaper every time you podcast and, and what they have going on and where they maybe have uh, some, some sort of mention of you. Uh, and what you're doing uh, in their pages. That would be awesome. I, I'd love to. I'd love to have a little side project helping them out if I could too. And uh, yeah, you know, thanks again, Matt. You know, the book uh, for everybody listening is "A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear." It's out September fifteenth. Uh, please buy it. Please read it. It's an awesome, awesome, awesome story, and it's written by an awesome guy, Matt Hongoltz Hetling. Did I get it right again? To you end got it episode? right again. You get the blue ribbon. Uh, Dan, it's been an absolute delight. Uh, So excited uh, to see your podcast growing by leaps and bounds here. Uh, I I hope you stay engaged with me on social media. I would love to uh, uh, keep mentioning and and, uh, noticing this great job that you're doing. And I'm looking forward to seeing you grow. All right. That was Matt Honkold's Hetling. His book, again, is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. It's out September 15th. 
And I was pretty amazed at how well that went. Matt is a great guy, and he was very patient with the completely amateur interviewer that I am. You know, I talk a lot for a guy who's supposed to be the one asking the questions. I got a lot to learn still, don't I? But anyway, I was thrilled at how the whole thing turned out. I really encourage you to buy the book as well. I swear I'm not just trying to hype it up for the sake of my guest. It really is a great read. So find it somewhere that isn't Amazon, for the love of God. Anyways, on that note, I'll add the same disclaimer I would usually add to an episode that had research in it, even though this episode did not, but I feel like it's worth saying in the context of the conversation we just had. So, you know, I don't ask my listeners for any sort of financial contribution. Honestly, this show is too small for that anyways, but if you do have the means, I urge you to consider supporting quality journalism wherever you can. Subscribe to your local paper or any outlets that could use your support right now. It means a lot to them, and really, right now, they very badly need it. So please, again, consider supporting that quality work wherever you can. All right, thanks for listening, folks. Regular episodes are coming back next week, and then as often as I can will myself to make them, I promise. Until then, take care, all the best, and I'll see you next time on Assorted Goods. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities, that's why a bear can rest at ease with just the bare necessities of life. Now when you pick a pawpaw or a prickly pear. This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness.